folks, Mackenzie Lambert here, the host of Mac and the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten, and the unforgettable. This episode is another special interview. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest. He's a writer, the host of the podcast Soups of Atlantis, and he's a filmmaker. This episode of Mac and the Movies celebrates 10 years of tryptosane, directed by our guest today, Mr. Michael Deserto. Uh, Michael, thanks for coming on today. Great to be here, Mackenzie. All right. Uh, just tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, did you come from a family of creatives or were you kind of the odd relative out? No, actually, uh, it's a very artistic bunch. And that, that goes back to my grandfather, who was a really great painter. Uh, and there's also uh, rumors, and I, I'd have to really con- go back and confirm this, but I'm, I'm going to believe the story, that my great-grandfather, I believe, was up for the same job as Tuscanini, but his he didn't speak English. So he didn't get the gig. So there's a lot of music and art and painting in, in my background. My uncle, who passed away uh, a few months ago, uh, was a multi-published author and also uh, put some kids' children's records out. Uh, my sister's an actress. My my sis, my other sister is in a rock band. I, you know, we're, we're we're an artistic bunch. My dad is a good painter and writer. Uh, he's actually the guy that inspired me to uh, to write. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, when was the moment you decided to engage in filmmaking? Or I guess maybe like what was the film that inspired you to take oh, it's, that path? It's it's easy. It's it's Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I, and I tell, I tell the good – I tell the complete story and I really – any Star Wars geek out there, listen to episode 10 of uh, Stoops of Atlantis. I go into the, the – every detail of how I was introduced to Star Wars and how it changed my life forever. Uh, by that, that's when I started picking up my dad's Super 8 movie camera. I've always been a writer. I've been writing stories way before that. Uh, and I was like 11 at the time when Star Wars came out. Uh, but I, I've been writing since I was five. But the uh, that, that really got me excited about the process of making movies. Uh, I, I couldn't get enough of the behind the scenes of George Lucas and, and Industrial Light and Magic. And I started doing, you know, little animated films and uh, uh, that just that, that that was the day the day I saw Star Wars. Awesome, very cool. Oh, uh, right, what's your filmmaking background? Did you actually attend a film school, or were you mostly self-taught? Uh, mostly self-taught. I actually went to college for computer science. I got my degree in computer science. Um, I did take some uh, film classes during college, and the funny the funny thing is, I we had a a, a big film festival and. Uh, I was the I won both of the awards and I was not the film major, <laughs> so that was that was kind of cool. I, I sort of like you know, jumped in there. Uh, it was an animated film and a, um, a sort of a sci-fi horror film I made for that for that festival, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> and other than that, yeah, just self-taught. I, I then wound up hooking up my cousin David and my best friend Russ, and we sort of formed a, a little company called Magic Vision Films, and that's when we started making movies and. Started out, you know, with with Super Eight, like everybody at that era at that time did. Uh, we made a, 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 a one hour long science fiction film called A Stone in the Road, and that was shot all over New York City in Central Park. And it was a big, you know, epic story about this alien who visits the Earth, and it was it was a lot of fun to make. And then we went on and we we got hired by a band by a, a band called the Pilly Band, and that was our first like paid gig, and we shot our music video. And a very funny story. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'll never, I'm never going to be uh, let this be forgotten because I, I get this thrown at me all the time as a in, in a funny way. But well, at the end, we were at the end of the shoot in a, in a studio in Brooklyn, 
And I, there was a, we had a dolly, you know, like one of those, uh, you know, camera dollies, which mm-hmm. was so cool working with like real professional equipment. And uh, our DP was Tom and Yellow, who shot, you know, we shot many films with. And anyway, so like a, a typical director minding my business where I shouldn't have been, I started pumping the hydraulic uh, pump on this dolly. Think, you know, because it, it needed to get pumped prior mm-hmm. to use. Now, we had finished with it, so I shouldn't have had my hands on it. <laughs> so I'm pumping this thing, and then all of a sudden, and it happened in slow motion, it exploded. Oh. And this, this hydraulic fluid sprayed everywhere. And this, there was a camera crane, a, a jib arm, a jib arm on this dolly, launched into the air with the camera still on it. I caught it. The weight was pulling me down. I screamed for, for Russ to grab the camera. He grabbed the camera. The crew and cat were running in every direction to wipe this fluid off their faces. It, and then it got all over this very expensive backdrop. Mm. It was a disaster. We were just ready to go home. We had wrapped. And now we had to spend three hours cleaning up this mess. Uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the great stories of uh, my filmmaking career. <laughs> I'd like to forget. <laughs> all right, well, you got to learn somehow. Yeah. And so uh, then, then, Oh, go ahead. Again, again I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to go into No Exit, but if there was something else you wanted to um, uh, mention or well, continue, go ahead. Well, yeah, before No Exit, uh, we, we did, then we moved on. We did a, what other film? We did a film, a horrible film called The Intruder, uh, which was a, this horror film about a, well, about an intruder into a woman's house. And it turns out she's actually the killer and who, who was uh, stalking this guy who, and it was his house, not her house. So there's that little ah, switch right. at the end. Uh, but it was pretty cheesy. Uh, but it was fun. It was again, again, these were all learning, learning experiences. Worked with two great actors, not great actors, but great people uh, on that film. But that was where I really first started working with Craig Lindbergh, who is became one of my best friends uh, ever. He's an incredible makeup artist, and we we met around that time. Actually, he also worked on Stone in the Road. He did the make the alien makeup on that, and he now works for Saturday Night Live and all kinds of TV wow. shows and movies and. Yeah, he's a total pro. He's he's got a nice career. Uh, yeah, then we after that we did a film. This was a good one called Joey Nero, which was a short film about maybe fifteen minutes long, but it starred Nick Sandow who uh, plays Joe Caputo in Orange Is the New Black, uh, and, and a bunch of other things. He's a he's a really terrific actor, and he wound up working. He was in No Exit as well, and another film we did called Well Different Schools, which was a promotional film to promote no exit. We had shot this. It was almost like a trailer, like a long trailer. And we shot this little piece to try to raise money to, to do the feature version of the film. And the film evolved incredibly. It went from this sort of Bronx tale sweeter film into this really epically violent blood fest, F-bomb fest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that okay, no so yeah, it was like more of a proof of concept. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. If you're lucky, you'll end up on your feet when a bell rings still knowing who's what. Only thing is, out here there ain't no referees. Yo, Jimmy, what are we fucking going fishing or what? We're fishing, yeah. Let me tell you something. I seen Benito in the gym the other day. That kid is looking sharp. Yeah, that Mulanyani's fighting. He's got a ride on like a fucking cannon. He's got a glass jaw. We could fucking sell to Tiffany. He's gonna take him out in the second round. You could bet on it. Nah, I saw Benny fight. No way he'd beat in schools. Come on. Fuck Jimmy. What is this fucking asshole doing here? Hey, I'm just trying to save your brother a fucking beating. What do you know about fucking anything? <laughs> Relax, all right, please. You're talking to guys who got shit for brains over here, right? Will you understand that? As far as I'm concerned, there's nothing I like to see better than Benny knock the shit out of that nigga. 
But the guys were good people, all right? They're gonna make a score with that kid. There's money to be made there, right? I mean, nobody's gonna fucking retire, but they're gonna earn. What you gotta think about is like a, like a long-time investment. You know, investment, business, no big shit. Hey, you see this fucking cigar? Shut up your fucking ass, huh? Smoking in my fucking car. The point is, Luca, they don't wanna see some golden boy, right? Carried out on a fucking stretcher because your asshole brother. More importantly, more importantly, they got the kid on a card in the garden in March with a ranked guy, all right? Augie wants Benny to take a dive. Luca, it's not the personal against your brother, okay? Wake up, Bison. This is fucking business. Uh, 1996, you co-directed uh, the crime drama No Exit. Uh, the film deals with a boxer getting involved with organized crime. Things turn from uh, bad to worse after a botched drug deal. It definitely has a strong Scorsese influence, but what were some of the challenges you faced during production? Oh, there's many. Uh, yeah, it definitely has Scorsese. No, no question about it. That was the man at the time I was watching all of his films. And I think he still is the man. He is the man. He's always the man. I've seen every <laughs> one of his films except Silence, and I need to, I need to catch up and watch that one. Uh, yeah, so we, uh, it was very much, we wanted, it was, a, it was a victim of bad timing. Um, uh, it's, which is a shame it, if we would have, if that film would have come out two years earlier, I think my career would have went a very different direction. Uh, but the problem was we had, uh, friend was, what was those films? It was, it was a bunch of films at the time that were coming out, these urban crime dramas. Mm-hmm. And we, at the time these were coming out and doing well and getting the directors a lot of attention and acclaim we were struggling to get this film done. And by the time we finished with it, uh, people had had enough of the genre. And that was, that was one of the problems. But we, I'll never forget, we, had a, a, we met this guy named David Buckley, who uh, it was sort of a serendipitous sort of meeting. My, my cousin David was going for a job interview at a studio on West 42nd Street called Raw Space, which was a studio space. And uh, Living in Oblivion was actually shot there. I'll get to that story in a bit with Steve Buscemi. Uh, so he happened to be this, this worker, this workman with a tool belt, long ponytail was standing around working on a, on a, putting, installing a light fixture or something. And it turned out that this worker was actually the man who owned the studio, Hmm. a very hands-on kind of guy. And he told, he started chatting with David and David said that we had a, he had a a project idea with, with his cousin that wanted to get done. So invited us in to meet and we pitched him our no exit. It wasn't called No Exit at the time. It had so many titles. I, I don't even remember what the title was when we pitched it. But anyway, so uh, he was really intrigued by us. He liked our energy. He thought we were – we had sort of a set of cojones on us. That, you know. <laughs> so he said, look, I, I have a bunch of Wall Street friends. He goes, And at the time, it was a good time for Wall Street. People were making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So he said, we'll put together a little pitch party. So we managed to contact Frank Vincent. Who uh, the actor was in, you know, Goodfellas, B- B- Billy Bats in Goodfellas, and uh, we tried to get Tony Musanti. We actually went down to his his little brownstone in the wow, West Village. Wow, from uh, Bird of Crystal Plumage, awesome. Right, exactly, yeah. And uh, so uh, we met we met with him in his home, and I remember he was in a cast on his leg at the time. But he had a bit of a, I don't know, he wasn't working at the time, but he had this attitude. He wants us to hire him a limousine, a stretch limo uh, to bring. So David Buckley was like, ah, screw him. So, so we thought I'm not using him. So Frank Vincent comes in, was very nice, and we did this little pitch party. Uh, in, in, within the building, the, uh, upstairs above the studio, there was a nice uh, a studio that was owned by one of these Wall Street dudes. And we, the next day, we get a call from David Buckley, and he goes, well, we got our first 40000 bucks." So the money started to roll in for this film. We were like, so excited. 
and we made it, uh, made the film. But Frank Vincent was not, <laughs> ended up not being in it uh, because we wound up not doing it non uh, non SAG, which was the biggest mistake that we could have made. We, at the time, we were wet behind the ears, and David Buckley, who by the way was a porno producer, uh, that's what he started his career at. Uh, he was involved with I think Debbie Does Dallas actually. So uh, anyway, so. so uh, <laughs> He was a character. Oh man, I could tell you, I could write a book about about the events with him. Anyway, we uh, we decided to do it non SAG, which was a mistake because there were ways to work with SAG, and all you filmmakers out there work with SAG. SAG is great; they will help you out. You can they, you don't have to pay the actors a lot of money. I, I did that with Trip to Sane. I, I went SAG, but with no exit, we didn't, and unfortunately, it hurt it hurt the film because we, it's very very difficult to cast older actors. If they're not in SAG by the time they're in their 60s, they're probably not good actors, <laughs> uh, which yeah. is sad to say. Uh, and we could have had some phenomenal actors with, you know, in this in this film. Oh, by the way, Vincent Gardinia was going to be in it. Oh. Uh, yeah, Vincent Gardinia read the script, liked it. He came to my apartment. We did a photo shoot on my roof to come up with some promotional uh, pieces for it. And he passed away. The guy had the nerve to die before we did the film. <laughs> <laughs> so... It was funny, but to show you the cojones I had at the time, they, uh, the day he died, I called the Daily News and I said, you know, Vincent Gardini was going to be in my film. And um, they did a, this story, they mentioned it in his, in his, obituary, in his obit column. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they said it, it, was, it was very funny. I saw that, that article, kind of, but he was such a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried to make a, he needed to make a call and we, we had a, uh, a, a, what do you call it, Garfield phone, a phone shape of uh. a cat. <laughs> and I never forget him picking the phone up. How the hell do you use this thing? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> so, so anyway, so we made no exit uh, with a with a non sag cast. Although we did have Vinnie Pastor from the yeah, S- oh yeah, from Goodfellas, right, Carlitos Way, Sopranos, uh, Big Pussy from Sopranos. At the time, he hadn't done Sopranos yet, um, and we had a uh, he was great, and we had Nick Sandow, obviously, who I'd become very good friends with, and uh, his career. This was his first feature film. Uh, who else? We had Arthur Nascarola, who pops up in a ton of movies. Uh, uh, well, who, was the, who, who was the gentleman that was uh, playing the guy selling the Roman candles and the lifesavers? Because he was hilarious. Oh, yeah. He, he was, he's great. He's a great character actor. I'm trying to remember his name now. Oh, you're dropping your shit all over. They go to college six months and come back. You're selling fireworks? Wait, 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 wait. This ain't the same kind of stuff you guys sell. It's not the same kind of stuff. Use guys. What the fuck is that? Use guys. You know, use. Use and use. Use guys. You know what I'm saying? Get the fuck out of here. This this is not the stuff that they do. Maka haka ding dong from Chinatown sell. Look at this. Check this out. Watch. These are Italian fireworks. You see what I'm saying? Look, 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 look. look. What does it say? Roman candles. Roman candles. Yeah, yeah, we he came we had an audition. He was he just shined at the audition. <laughs> he just he just blew us away. There's certain times you have an audition where you just offer the job right then and there. Mm-hmm. And he had played Babalu. That was the character. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I remember seeing him in a, a Little Caesars commercial in the 1990s yeah. with Evil Kimmy Boy and Jimmy Walker. Yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Little Caesars needs a celebrity for they no stuffed crust pizza combo. They don't charge a lot, so they can't afford a big name. What do you say? 
dynamite! You still got it! They don't charge a lot, so they can't afford a big name. You're perfect. Yeah, he would pop up all in little these little roles. Yeah, he was he was, he was great. Uh, yeah, Nick, and Nick Sando obviously, and uh, who else was it? Arthur Escarolo, who's been in Scorsese films and Goodfellas, and I'm just not sorry, not Goodfellas, Sopranos. Mm-hmm. Or Anthony Rubastello was in Sopranos. Was a terrific guy, the big guy who ended up dead in the trunk with a cigar shoved in his mouth. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that scene? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was wondering. Okay, I know. I knew his face from somewhere. It's like okay, I know I've seen him from other work. So yeah. Yeah, he played. Uh, he, he was uh, Tony Soprano's driver for a few episodes. Uh, really funny guy. Funny because it's a little personal story. But I, at the time, back when I was making No Exit, I used to. I, I've been. I'm follically challenged, you know. So, mm-hmm. and from a young age, so I, I, I had been a hair club for men uh, member for a while, and so I had a, a nice full head of hair. But Anthony Rubastel was bald. One day at a bar, we were just hanging out, drinking, and he goes, Mike, he goes, I got to tell you something. He goes, you're a really honest, forthright kind of guy. When are you going to get rid of that thing? <laughs> <laughs> so was, I was so embarrassed. I was embarrassed because I didn't think anyone knew, which was a joke because a lot of people did. But I wound up getting rid of it, you know, like around the year 2000, I think, and much happier without it. But uh, anyway, that's a little side story. Where am uh, I going with this? Okay, yeah. I'm rambling. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is good stuff. Uh, what were um, some of the uh, endeavors you engaged in between 1996 and 2002? I just wasn't able to find much in that time period, but I, I'm sure you were able to keep very, very busy. Well, you, you know, a lot of it was trying to get something going with no exit. Uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, – well, actually, I'll, I'll be totally honest. It was uh, – the relationship with Buckley went sour. Mm. Uh really sour. And, uh, my friend Russ, who was the, uh, producer on the film, uh, he had not one, not wanted nothing to do with the film. See, we re- rewind just a little bit. Uh, when we finished the first cut, they, they brought the film to some markets and, uh, uh, there was a distributor who liked the film, but couldn't do anything with it as it was. So they, they said, look, we have an actor, his name is Frank Zagarino. And he does these action films that are that do well in like South Africa. Uh, he's, a, he's a California dude, blonde hair, you know, Italian, <laughs> but but not not a New Yorker. So he says, if you could write, a, you know, a back, anything, write a story that you could edit into the film with him in it, uh, we could we'll distribute the film and we'll pay for the reshoots. So we well we had a naturally built in story because uh, if you remember, Benny is always mourning his brother Luca who had vanished. Yeah. So we said, all right, we could write a flashback sequence with with a brother Luca and Frank Zagarino can play Luca. So we did that and we shot it in 35 millimeter, which was amazing. And we had a bit more money for that reshoot than we did for the entire first film. <laughs> uh, yeah. And but the problem was you would think this was a dream situation. It turned into a nightmare because the relationship with Buckley had just gotten so bad. None of us wanted to be there. And it was the strangest feeling that here's my dream. And I didn't. I wanted to run and, and get a temp job or something. Mm. Uh, it was really a kind of a sad, <laughs> sad situation. But we did shoot it, and we we got some pretty decent scenes. The guy's, you know, he wasn't a New Yorker. We dyed his hair black, and he he did a good, he did a decent job. Uh, I got to give him credit. He he did a decent job for being thrown into something, and uh, it worked. I mean, the new footage did work. It, it didn't. It, I don't think it hurt the story. I think it actually in the in the, in the end. Uh, gave it a nicer feel, and then a German company picked it up, and I actually have a copy of No Exit dubbed in German, which is <laughs> it's hilarious to hear these wise guys talk in German. 
Vinnie Pastore sounds like Hitler. I don't know whose voice they got, but it's like Hitler when he screamed. It's so funny. It's probably Bruno Gans, for, for all we know. Das war ein but yeah, so then after after that, I, I the, the whole process of filmmaking, and we kind of got we kind of soured on us. And we Russ Russ didn't want anything to do with it, and, and me and David got some, there was some bad blood between me and my cousin David. It got ugly. Uh, it was an ugly period where I sort of got away from filmmaking, and uh, until the 2000 or 1999, it was when we me and Russ were, had gone to the Chiller Convention. And which is a lot of fun. And we decided, you know what, this would be a fun documentary. Uh, so that's when Chiller Three Days of Peace, Love and Gore was made. <laughs> in October 1926, I was standing in front of a magazine stand and a publication called Amazing Stories jumped off the stand, grabbed hold of me, and you're too young to know, but the magazine spoke in those days, and that was a take me home, little boy, you will love me. In the unimaginably distant year of 2000, you will find yourself being interviewed at something called Chiller Coffee. It was so cool about it was not only was my name on it, but you had two columns, and my name was right at the bottom. So I just met Forrest, Forrest J. Ackerman. He used to publish a magazine called The Famous Monsters of Film. And a lot of us uh, got involved in the horror movies or the horror genre and all that. Okay, thank you. We, you know, we used to. That was our first introduction to a lot of the famous monsters like Frankenstein's monster and Dracula and stuff like this. What I like about horror is, I just like the whole like the blood and gore, but I like the older movies more, like the Universal ones, because they still put romance in it. And I'm, I'm a romantic, you know, hopeless romantic, hopeless romantic. And we spent the weekend there and shot a ton of footage, a ton of interviews. And I don't know if you've seen the whole thing. It's on YouTube, most of it. I need to put the entire film up. Yeah, you uh, were able to feature Zachary, who's a legend in the field of horror hosts. You have David F. Friedman, the uh, infamous partner of Herschel Gordon Lewis, Forrest mm -hmm. J. Ackerman. It, yep. This must have been a blast. Oh, it was so, so much fun. Uh, it really was. And then the party, the costume party, uh, you know, which is which is sort of intercut throughout the film. Yeah, no, it was so much fun. The guy that played uh, was in the costume for the creature from the Black Lagoon. I'm blanking on his name. Ben Chapman, was, I believe. Chapman, Ben yeah. Chapman. There you go. Uh, yeah, there was some fun interviews. So a lot of the Scream Queens we we interviewed. Uh, it was yeah, that was a that, that film was a real blast. I had a, that sort of game you know fired me up again about filmmaking and uh, so yeah, that was fun. But there was a I just want to rewind. There was a great a great story. This is only in, one of those only in New York stories when we were <laughs> shooting No Exit. Uh, we were shooting in, in a really bad neighborhood in Queens. The uh, Augie, the, you know the scenes in the bar? Yeah. Uh, that bar is in uh, Queensbridge, Queens, which is not a good neighborhood. Uh, but this this guy's like a tough Italian ex-boxer. And uh, he made friends with the locals and, uh, you know, they all loved him. So we were shooting in that area and we, we needed a, a quick scene where uh, Johnny Fry, the actor, is on a phone booth. And Nick Sandow comes up behind him with a tire iron and whacks him in the head. And starts beating him up. So we had a very small crew when we were shooting. That it was just a cameraman, a sound guy, and me and a couple others. So, so we're shooting the scene, and in the corner of my eye, I notice a white car is pulling up, very just cruising by. And just as Nick starts beating up uh, Johnny Fry on the sidewalk, the car zooms, jumps the curb. Two on two plainclothes cops jump out, draw their guns, and aim at us. <laughs> And I was like, no, 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 we're making a movie. We're making a movie. <laughs> and everybody froze. And the cops looked at me, rolled their eyes, got back in the car and drove off. <laughs> and you want to know the scary thing? 
originally the plan was to have Nick do that scene with an Uzi and beat him with an Uzi. I, oh. I think he may have been shot. If, <laughs> yeah, that was scary. It was a really scary moment. <laughs> Uh, the, the thrills of filming in New York. Oh, that's great. I love, I love, sh- I love shooting on location in New York. It's, it's the best place to shoot. Uh, around the same time as uh, you released the uh, Chiller documentary, I know there was Bruce Campbell's own like little mini documentary, Fanalysis, which was kind of a cynical, sarcastic look at fandom, whereas mm-hmm. you you kind of held it up as an endearing uh, just love fest where, you know, these are people who probably under normal circumstances wouldn't see each other or interact. But yet here at this festival, it's kind of a, a coming together moment where people can actually enjoy these things together. Yes. And that, well, that's what endeared me to that festival, that, that convention is that the people there were just so nice. You know, th- these are people who love gore and blood and violence, but at heart, they are the sweetest people. And I, you know, like the goth, the goth people I, I find to be some of the sweetest people on earth and they project themselves as these dark brooding types. <laughs> Everyone at that festival is just there's so much joy, and that is what turned me on to it. Uh, and that's yeah, you're, you're exactly right. That is the message we wanted to get across in the doc is that these are fun, good people who just love weird, weird crap. You know. <laughs> so yeah, no, no, I'm glad you felt that vibe because that's, that was the intent. In 2009, you published Milky Way Marmalade. Uh, I read the blurb in a few reviews. It, it seems like a mix of Psychedelia and Douglas Adams. Uh, what inspired that particular story? Oh, man. That is – I don't know if I've ever written anything better. Um, it's it's my favorite book. Um, I think – to blow my own horn, I think it's a great, funny, humorous sci-fi book. And that people – I just wish more people would read it. Um, if you love Douglas Adams, this is Doug, Douglas Adams on acid times 10. <laughs> Uh, it's a real, what really inspired it was my love of rock music. Uh, it's really rock and roll saving the universe. That's what the, that's the main point of the whole story is this guy, Caffrey Quark, who is a intergalactic meat hunter. He hunts meat, exotic life forms for the super, for the super riches taste, uh, rare exotic animals. He hunts from planets all around the galaxy. So these rich, obnoxious people could eat them. And uh, one day while flying through space, he notices something floating towards the ship and he pulled on board and it's a jukebox from near from uh, 20th century America. And he and all the discs inside are all crumbled except for one and that stairway to heaven. And he listens to it and he's changed forever. So he goes back in time and he moves to New York City in the 1960s, uh, late 1960s or 70s and starts a rock band. And then something happens and he winds up back in space. Mm-hmm on an incredible adventure. And it's, a, it's very funny. Uh, the reviews are phenomenally good. I love it. And I want to make it a movie one day. I think it would be an incredible movie. And yeah. I don't, I don't know how to top it. I'm, the publisher keeps asking me to write a sequel and I, I just, I'm, it's a, it's a challenge. Yeah. That's always a dangerous game. Uh, a sequel to something that was actually really good or successful. Yeah. That's, that's always the trick. Any updates? My grandfather? He's still giving them hell about wanting to go die in the jungle. The day before my eighth birthday, my grandfather said he was going to send me a gift in a dream. Do you have dreams like this often? I can't remember the last time I dreamt. <laughs> Sleepless nights and bad dreams are typical, but nowadays not necessary. I'm going to write you a script. You know, I had a dream about a guy named Dr. Rennett. Who's Ken Rennett? The researcher. Altered states, psychedelics. You mean I had a perfect place to cop good shit right in my own building? Hey, you, smoking mother nature. This is the bust. I'd like to sit down and talk about this in more depth. Have my computer examine you. Your computer? Yes. 
special one. You want to hear my opinion? This Rupert has a shaman in his bloodline. I think he may be extra sensitive. My grandfather, he said that the modern world tries to find the answer to all its woes in little pills. getting so crazy. I took double my dose and I'm still getting knocked out of my sleep. You look like you just got off the cyclone at Coney Island. I ate some mushrooms. I assume you don't mean shiitake. Tell me of your experience. It seemed intense. I went somewhere. In uh, 2010, you unleashed Tryptosane. Uh, I first saw it at the uh, Buffalo Screams Film Festival, a solid collection of films that first year, too. You had Brett Kelly's Avenging Force, The Scarab, Brian Singleton's Werewolf Fever, and even Greg Lamerson's Slam City Massacre. Yep. Uh, it was a Sunday morning, uh, the last day of the festival. Uh, what interested me in the film was the fact that you had Trace Beaulieu of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, uh, yes. I, know you, I know you and I often share our love for that show on social media frequently. Uh, what I saw in the movie itself was the kind of movie Kubrick would make if he had to work in the low-budget indie filmmaker <laughs> sector. Uh, what was the genesis of Tryptosane? Wow. Well, that's a great compliment. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> well, the genesis was I was getting really interested at the time. Was I was listening to a lot of Terrence McKenna lectures. And Terrence McKenna is a sort of a psychedelic philosopher. Uh, brilliant, brilliant mind. Just If you listen to him, you, just, you can't believe the thoughts that – People can have such thoughts, and he's just he's just amazing. So I was just going to kind of get interested in that subject, uh, reading a lot on it and shamanism. Uh, I started reading a lot on shamanism. So I wanted to make another film. So I, I, the story just sort of evolved. And it, it's funny. There's a guy, the, the, the main actor in there, Larry Block, who plays Doctor uh, Rennet. Uh, he he was I saw him for the first time, believe it or not, in Mash. Uh, he, he's in two episodes of Mash. He's in the one where the the guy, the soldier with all the tattoos. Are you familiar? Are you a big Mash fan? Oh yeah, yeah. I've actually yeah. been catching up on it a lot recently. So he was in the role, the episode with the uh, the guy with the tattoos, and then he was he played Sergeant Shamoli, who winds up giving Hawkeye a a, a cannon instead of a jeep in a poker game. Uh, <laughs> and he was great. Like you know, I noticed on Mash there are a lot of these smaller actors who do who just shine, and the main cast always allowed. The, the smaller actors, the guest actors, to shine. And that's what Larry told me. He said working with, with, with the uh, main guys on, on MASH was phenomenal. So anyway, then I, then I was a, became a big, 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 big fan of Joe Frank, who was a radio storyteller, which then leads to my podcast. But I love radio storytelling. Uh, it's my fav- one of my favorite things. And Joe Frank's best friend was Larry Block, the same guy. And it would appear on his show. They would just have phone conversations. So I said, you know, this guy, that's the guy from MASH. I said, you know, I think he his voice is great. I looked him up. I said, he would be perfect for Dr. Rennett in Tryptosane. I said, what the heck? I'm going to contact him. So I found his, I found a connection to him. And I, and I told him, I said, look, I wrote this part for you. And he said, well, how could I turn that down? So, uh, <laughs> you know, and, we, and he joined the cast. And uh, now Trace, on the other hand, was I thought it was a long shot. I thought, no way is he going to do this. <laughs> so I, I managed, I forgot how I got the contact. It was a contact of a contact. And I said, could you just pass this message to Trace? I said, I have this part. I want to play the voice of a computer. Um, would he be interested? And uh, he, Trace contacted me back about two weeks later. And he says, I'd love to do it. He goes, I'm, you know, me and my wife wanted to come to New York. This would be a good excuse to come to New York. So uh, he did. And I'll never forget, uh, he was staying at a hotel on the, on the Upper West Side. And me and my wife uh, went to go meet him. And he walked out. And I was like, oh, my God, that's Trace Bulu. <laughs> And we took him to dinner. We, you know, we, we, I'll never forget. We went to a restaurant on Restaurant Row, 
and uh, what's, what's her joy? John Rivers was there at the time, and he was so excited that John Rivers was in the restaurant. Uh, but he was great. He was just so much fun, so laid back. Uh, and he, I thought he did a terrific job. And you also were able to have a Mary Jo Pell uh, was a nice yes. touch in her brief cameo. That was that was a, a, something that happened later uh, when I was reworking the film. I said, you know, I, I want to have uh, this 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 woman's voice, and I said, why not? Why not get Mary Jo? We have Trace. Uh, she was cool. She she actually uh, literally phoned it in. I mean, she <laughs> she sent it out. She recorded it at home and just it sent me the, the the lines that I needed. And uh, yeah, that was that was that was a nice little little touch. A funny little story. I know I've told this uh, to you uh, previously uh, a while ago, but I, I want to share it with the audience as well. I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Trace and Frank at a Mads Are Back show here in Buffalo. Uh, this was in 2018. I walked up to Trace and told him I was a big fan of his work in Tryptosane. <laughs> <laughs> he responded by saying, oh, so you're the one guy who saw that <laughs> exactly, movie. Exactly. That's so funny. I, I, you know, I, I would cry if that wasn't so true. I have to laugh. That, that's, that's classic. Genuinely just one of the nicest people I've ever met. Yes. Uh, in 2013, the first book in the Rupert Starbright series was published, uh, Door to the Far Mist, uh, a sense of whimsy, almost like Terry Gilliam's work for Monty Python or Time Bandits. Uh, what led you to pursue children's literature? Uh, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big kid. Uh, I, yeah, I just wanted to, I don't remember the exact origins of how the story, I don't know what, where these stories come from, but I wanted to write, wanted to write a, uh, it's sort of a middle grade uh, Webble book. Uh, I like I like writing for that audience. Uh, I just think there's they're still open to the fantasy, but you could be a bit more mature with the themes. Um, mm-hmm. And Rupert Starbright is actually uh, there's a lot of dark moments in the book. Uh, I don't know if you have a chance to read it. Uh, there's some real moments of facing fear and standing up to fear. The, you know, Rupert's a, a tough little kid, uh, and the, the basic premise is he lives in a in a town called Grazeland, and there's no imagination. He didn't, in fact, they don't even know what the imagination is. Until one day, this stranger descends from the sky in a in a colorful balloon—not a balloon, but a balloon—and uh, says he needs a child to come to this land where there are some problems happening. They need a kid with imagination, so he has a little test, and Rupert wins the test, and he goes to Farmist, and he discovers that in Farmist, uh, all the children have vanished, and there's a ba- a baddie trying to drain the color because Farmist is a really colorful place. It's the opposite of Grazeland, but all the colors are starting to fade. And so Rupert was in a way duped to come there, to come into a very dangerous situation. So this is where the darkness of the tale comes in. And uh, he, he, he goes on this amazing adventure to uh, – and what I love about the – I don't want to give away the ending, but I'm a big fan of redemption of villains uh, rather than killing the villains. Mm-hmm. Like uh, that's why I always love the end of uh, you know, uh, uh, Return of the Jedi. I, I, I like the fact that Vader was redeemed. Uh, so my villains tend to be redeemed in my books, even in Milky Way Marmalade. So uh, it, it's a it's a really uh, exciting, fun, colorful, imaginative tale. And then book three, uh, there, there were two books. It was actually one book. The publisher felt it was too long, so they cut it into two parts. Sort of like what happened to Tolkien. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so they, they split into two books, uh, The Daughter of Our Mist and The Secret of My Mist. There once was a small American town. And although it sat in the forgotten corner of a giant city, it was much like any other small community around America. Everyone knew everyone else's name and everyone's business. Instead of a stream or a brook, we had the fire hydrant. We didn't have farmer's markets, but we did have a well-stocked bodega. And rather than sitting on the front porch to watch the little world fall by, we sat on our stoops. Now it seems like an ancient time. 
like it was some lost city. It was like I had watched it all from the stoops of Atlantis. On February 18th, 2019, you published the first episode of your podcast, Stoops of Atlantis. I really love this show. It, it feels like a program that Martin Scorsese would produce. Uh, the narration fits right in with that Goodfellas or a Bronx Tale tone. And it's actually different from most of the other podcasts I listen to. You know, film co- podcasts these days are a dime a baker's dozen. <laughs> There's sports, pop culture, comedy. But nostalgic storytelling, uh, specifically that of childhood in East Harlem, it feels fresh. It's like I've never really heard anything like this before. Oh, thank you. Uh, how much of the show would you say is uh, autobiographical? Oh, it's a 99%. Uh, it's, yeah, these are, my t- these are my stories growing up at East Harlem, 118th Street. Uh, that Pleasant Avenue, which is famous, and I always hope telling the story, it's famous in The Godfather, where James Conn beats up his brother-in-law under the hydrant. That's my street. Um, and I was there, I was like a five-year-old, and there's an episode, if you listen to, I think it's episode 19, Making Movies, there's the whole story of, of not just The Godfather, but Serpico and a bunch of other movies that were shot uh, in my neighborhood. My, my, my East Harlem at that time in the 70s and 80s looked like a film set. Cobble, a lot of cobblestone streets, quiet, desolate. Uh, there was a giant abandoned factory along the East River, uh, which really gave it a desolation, uh, which is now a, a very busy shopping mall. Uh, but growing up, it was empty. Uh, we actually shot a scene in No Exit in that abandoned uh, factory. And so, yeah, so the, the, all these stories are just stuff that I did. You know, I tell people who are now maybe in their 20s the things we did as kids, and they, they look at me like I'm insane. <laughs> I mean, there's one of the early episodes, you know, my, a friend of mine found a duffel bag filled with M80s uh, in the garbage. That's that's what you found in East Harlem in the 70s. You found, you know, you found M80s. So we took them in my backyard and we opened them all up and we filled a coffee can to the brim with gunpowder. <laughs> and we were, we were contemplating packing it and putting a fuse and making a giant bomb out of it. Then we decided uh, we kind of chickened out. So we just stuck the fuse in the open top. <laughs> Put it in the middle of the street on a busy summer day with the fuse and stood back and watched as this little mini sun was born on 118th Street, <laughs> filled the entire block with smoke. And we got scared. We're like, oh, my God, this thing is burning forever. It was burning. It burned for like a solid minute. Now, that's a long time mm-hmm. when you're sitting there like smoke, people coming out their windows. We thought the cops were going to come. And then finally it ended and we went and looked and the can was gone. It had melted the can. <laughs> That's what we did for fun. You know, these are the kind of crazy things we did. And oh, they're all in these episodes. I mean, these these are the stories. Nothing, very, very little is embellished. Uh, it's, 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 the way, it's the way it happened. Uh, the, the candy episode was probably my personal favorite just because I'm old enough to actually have enjoyed some of those candies. Uh, but the, the, I don't know what – maybe you and I have uh, different memories of the wax bottles, but I mm-hmm. didn't like those at all. You didn't like those, man. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you touch on the Summer of Sam. Uh, you mentioned the release of Star Wars, Halloween. Uh, have there been any topics you thought about covering and then realized, you know, they don't really fit the tone or maybe they were just irrelevant to the context of East Harlem? Yeah, uh, the violence. Uh, there was a lot of violent things that happened. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure a way to work because there were some really dark things that happened in, uh, as I was growing up. You know, I've seen people shot and stabbed. You know, it, it was – but I'm, I don't want to – bring the, the podcast down uh, mm-hmm. too much because I like the, the levity of it and the sweetness of it. Uh, I don't curse on it. You know, I just try to keep it really family friendly. Uh, but there were some really dark moments and I'm, and I'm trying to figure out a way. I've been thinking of ways to work them in because uh, there's certainly some great stories 
that are quite dark. Uh, what are some subjects we can expect in the future for Stoops of Atlantis? Well, <laughs> one of the ones I'm thinking about uh, has really – it doesn't really have anything to do with East Hall. It has to do with me uh, and that's Devo. <laughs> I was the oh. biggest Devo fan you will ever meet. Uh, I, my high school sweater is stitched on the side, Devo Kid. Uh, <laughs> there's some, I, I don't know what it was about the band. I think it was the time uh, when they came out, that first album spoke to me. It was science fiction-y, but it was funky and punky and, and geeky and, the, you know, catchy. The costumes were great that they wore. And I just, I became this humongous Devo fan. Um, I would actually... I would actually go into into Woolworths and try flower pots on to try to find <laughs> ones that looked like Devo hats. Uh, I had, yeah. I, I, it was yeah. I mean, I, we would sit around talking about Devo. I would listen to it constantly. I had one embarrassing moment where Devo was going to be on the Merv Griffin show, so I was sitting in my living room. And we were on the ground floor, and I had my, I had a real Devo hat and I had that on. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I hear giggling, and I look outside, and this girl in the neighborhood who I had a crush on was laughing at me from outside, seeing me with my stupid Devo hat on. Oh, it was embarrassing. Uh, I remember uh, I had the pleasure of seeing Devo in 2010, and when they threw the, the Devo hats into the audience, <laughs> I literally had to fight to get one oh, of those things. <laughs> in 2010, I, I saw them in 1982 in Central oh, Park. Uh, in Central yeah. Park, it was 102 degrees. Uh, there's a photo on actually on the Stoops of Atlanta's Facebook page. There's a picture of me and my friend Scott in our getup uh, from that concert. Uh, for people who say they're a one hit wonder, I, gosh, I don't know how they can oh, get that okay. just because of how deep of a catalog they have. Oh, I think their big hit was the, was the, my least favorite song, Whip It. Yeah. I think so oh, many yeah. better songs. Oh yeah. I was, gosh, I'm trying to think. I know their cover of I Can't Get No Satisfaction is probably one of the best song covers uh, ever made. That's great. That's classic. <laughs> but their Duty Now for the Future album, I think is my favorite. Their second album. Uh, that's the one I think is, for me, is my, I think it's my favorite. I might have to go with New Traditionalist. Just New Traditionalist, yeah. Beautiful World. Just such mm-hmm. an amazing song, for, especially for a band. Yeah. And I think that's actually a pretty good note to end on. Uh, anything you'd like to plug, social media projects, uh, where can people find you? Well, the best place is to, if you on Facebook, come to the Stoops of Atlantis uh, Facebook page. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast. Go to your podcast, wherever your podcast um, uh, supplier is. Uh, just go to them. Listen to Stoops. Give it a shot. I think... I think you'll enjoy it. And also the books on Amazon, you know, The Adventures of Rupert Starbright. Three, there are three books out so far. I'm working on the fourth. And the Milky Way Marmalade, if you're into humorous, off-the-wall science fiction, please, please check it out. And, uh, yeah, that's it. But Facebook is the best place to find me and communicate. I'll, I'll always, I, I communicate with everyone. I'll friend anyone. So uh, <laughs> come by and uh, become part of the stoop. Hang out on the stoop with us. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, this I, I, this is a fun conversation. I really enjoyed this. So we'll have to definitely have you back on again in the near future. All right. And on that note, I think uh, we'll go ahead and I will go ahead and uh, sign off. Thanks again for coming on, Mike. This is this is a good time. It was great being here. I'd love to come back.
I want to thank uh, Mr. Deserto for taking time out of his schedule to chat with us. And because this episode will be going up on May the 4th, Star Wars Day, I'll have a link to the Star Wars episode of The Stoops of Atlantis for you to check out. The next episode of the podcast uh, will be Zucker, Abrams, and Zuckers, uh, which I delayed in favor of these two interviews. Uh, The films to be featured are the Kentucky Fried Movie, Airplane, The Naked Gun, Files from Police Squad, Hot Shots, Brain Donors, and Basketball. That episode will drop on Monday, May 18th. Until then, this is Mackenzie Lambert from Mac and the Movies. Take care, folks. (laughs) 